Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Rick Doblin, who many of you may know as the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science. Some have called him the king of the psychonauts. Uh, he has had a long-standing interest in psychedelics and has been at the forefront of not only their therapeutic use, but also uh, in legalizing their use. He attributes his interest in psychedelics to his disappointment with his bar mitzvah, amazingly enough. And we'll hear more about that today. Also, he uh, did the first follow-up on the Good Friday experiment 25 years after that work was done by Timothy Leary. And we'll hear all about that. So this should be a fascinating discussion, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. So I, I think, Rick, that you were saying... Um, you're talking about the underestimated risk yeah. of the Good Friday experiment, yeah. uh, specifically in regard to the individual who uh, left the session. Uh, the other thing I, I wanted, maybe you could comment on, because you mentioned Houston Smith, who I had the pleasure yeah. of meeting near the end of his life. You hadn't mentioned him before, so how did he oh, oh. also intertwine in here, this as well? well? Well, okay, so the Good Friday experiment was done with um, 20 divinity students from Andover Newton, and they were divided up into um, five groups of four. And each of these four students had two experimenters. Um, and one of them was going to get psilocybin, and one of them was going to get the placebo as well. And Houston Smith, Ramdas, uh, Gunter Weil, Ralph Metzner, uh, a whole cascade of really, really interesting people, Walter Houston Clark, were the experimenters' assistants, and they were assigned to these groups. So as part of my follow-up to the Good Friday experiment, I interviewed not just the subjects, but also the as many of the people that were um, assisting as well. And so there's actually a later paper that uh, Bob Jesse um, wrote with Houston Smith about the story about this one person that uh, was tranquilized with the uh, Thorazine. <laughs> so Houston Smith was a very strong um, supporter of, of the potential value of psychedelics, but he also made a, a very important point, which was, and he's done this in general, but he said there's a, a difference between a religious experience and a religious life. And so he was really pointing to this process of integration which is also what I had um, underestimated and ignored in my early years of trying to just do as many psychedelics as I could. So I think that um, the interviews with Houston Smith were also really instructional for me, as with the other supporters, uh, uh, the other helpers in, in the experiment. So I was um, you know, honored to, to have some time with Houston Smith and be able to talk to him about psychedelics. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, uh, you had mentioned, uh, and we unfortunately had a little interruption in our conversation, but you had mentioned that uh, Timothy Leary and others had underestimated the potential risk of this experiment. And I, yeah. maybe you could just comment on that briefly yeah. again. Well, I think that um, 
what they really did that I thought was wrong was that once they saw that there was this person that had a difficult experience, they didn't report it. So I think they did underestimate at the beginning when they did this experiment what it would do for different people under the influence of these powerful sermons. But you know that's okay. You can you can underestimate things and then you do research and then you try to see what's really going on. But once you understand what's really going on, not to report that is really bad. Now, at the time that the experiment took place, there was kind of a general understanding that sometimes people would give Thorazine to bring people down off a difficult trip. And one of the main things we've learned, I would say, since then, and, and people, other people knew that right then, is that you freeze the experience in place when you tranquilize somebody during a difficult psychedelic experience. It's the worst thing you could do, not the best thing. And it's much better to support people while they're having a difficult experience, even if it's really painful, because at the end of it, they will at least realize they survived. They handled it, they could survive, they, they, they maybe shut down, it was maybe overwhelming, but when you tranquilize them, you reinforce this idea they can't handle what's inside them, and that the best thing to do is just shut it down. And so I think that in a way, they maybe thought, oh, this is not that uncommon. Sometimes thorazine is used, but that's not the way you do research. And it was a very difficult thing for me to discover once I did this, because people look to the Good Friday experiment as this um, sort of epitome of, of classic, great scientific research into psychedelics and mystical experiences. And then to discover this part that um, should have been told but wasn't was uh, disheartening. But again, I think in general, the boosterism that, that uh, Tim Leary did was, um, after he left Harvard, was also this idea of um, all you need to do is take the drug. There was a little bit of this, just take the drug and you'll be enlightened, whatever that happens to mean. So there was too much of a sense that the drug itself is all you need to do, not the set, the setting, the context, although Leary later developed concepts of the set and setting. Um, and so it, it just was a cautionary note. And I think some of the things that spiraled out of control during the 60s might not have, if there would have been a little bit more balanced presentation about the risks, and not such an exaggeration that everybody who took the drug had a mystical experience. So that, that those things, I think... Now, I, I understand why Timothy Leary was willing to make those statements, because he felt that the backlash that he saw was coming from the government, they suppressed research in order to block anything about the benefits, and they exaggerated the risks. You know, LSD causes chromosome damage, and you're going to have deformed babies, or you take it and stare at the sun. So you know, he became sort of an opposite mirror image of what the government was doing, and it was terribly damaging what the government did, but I think it wasn't as helpful. Um, but I would say that the main um, hypothesis of the Good Friday experiment was confirmed by the follow-up study, and that hopeful intersection between mystical experiences and uh, political and social justice action. I think it really does build compassion for others if you see them as part of your family or that you're more similar than not. And that, that was the big hope for me back in 72 when I decided to focus my life on psychedelics when I was 18. It was more about the political implications of the mystical experience than it was about these tools for psychotherapy. Well, that's actually, that's uh, 
sort of a fascinating uh, um, juxtaposition. On the one hand, you're looking at uh, the mystical experience as creating the environment uh, to create, whether you want to call it social justice or the sense of oneness and our obligation to care for the other, uh, compared to a more, I guess, therapeutic uh, context in regard to helping people who have fundamental, uh, I, I don't know if mental health issues is the right word, but who have baggage they're carrying that is negatively impacting their lives. Yeah, I think that, that is real. And now there's actually one really important um, thing that we've learned um, about the relationship between the mystical experience and therapeutic outcome. So in the work with LSD and psilocybin in the 60s, and in the work over the last um, roughly 20, almost 25 years with psilocybin and other psychedelics, there's been a, a observed correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and therapeutic outcomes. People that are scared of dying, the more you feel this interconnectedness, you, you lose your somewhat your fear of death. People that are depressed they have this sense of connection, they're not so lonely and isolated. People who are addicted to um, um, alcohol or tobacco, you have this spiritual experience, you kind of can draw strength from that to um, resist things that might be harmful to you that, that, and get over certain habits. So that's pretty well, I'd say that's firmly established that in the work with classic psychedelics, the way in which um, Walter Pankey actually developed the mystical experience questionnaire for his uh, dissertation, um, and that's been used essentially unchanged, minor changes since then in all of this research. But when we administer the same questionnaire to people in our studies with MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, people don't score quite as high on the mystical experience questionnaire as they do with MDMA as they do with the classic psychedelics, but they do score pretty high. And one third of the people that we tested did score over this 60% uh, completion to be considered uh, pretty much to have a mystical experience. But there was no correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and reduction of PTSD symptoms. Oh, that's interesting. So the way that MDMA works is we have this, uh, what we call it, inner-directed therapy we support whatever is emerging. It may be the trauma, it may be something else, it may come in the body, it may come in pains, it may come in emotions, it may come in nausea, any kind of different ways. We support the experience and expression of whatever is emerging and we're not trying to focus people on revisit your trauma, that happens naturally, but we're also not trying to steer people to having a mystical experience. And in the, the work that's being done a lot with psilocybin, that is, an explicit goal because they have found that that is a predictor of correlation with therapeutic outcomes. And I think that MDMA works differently, PTSD, in the sense that in order to revisit past traumas and try to do what we would call a fear extinction, memory reconsolidation, neuroplasticity, that you kind of need an ego intact to, to remember the things that happened to you. Or even if they happened when you were little, you're still kind of thinking about that. So. I don't think you need this ego dissolution in order to um, heal from PTSD when you're under MDMA-assisted therapy. Well, that's fascinating. Well, uh, let me switch gears slightly, and we'll get back to this. But um, <clears throat> one, tell me 
from your perspective, the connection between the mystical experience and consciousness? Yeah, well, part of this mystical experience is there still is an observer. So how, how is it, you know, that if you have this, uh, you know, reduction of activity in the default mode network, for example, you know, where we think of it as our sense of self, that even when that activity can be severely, substantially diminished, there still is this observer of some kind. Um, with 5-MeO-DMT, which is just an incredible, you know, the most powerful psychedelic that we know of, it acts super fast. Um, you this can is the have, toad, correct? Yeah, yeah, this is the toad. There, there are now vape pens, by the way, that are um, low, medium, and high doses of it, so you can moderate your dose. <laughs> And I actually, I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> oh, it's so helpful. That is the new way. I mean, wow. I, because it's so overwhelming. So I actually did the, tried the vape pens a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, I, what they did for me was bring me in touch with the prior trauma. And I could feel the dissolution of the ego, but I felt like, okay, I don't need to go further. I should deal with this trauma. But with, 5-MeO in the past, you'd smoke it in a pipe and you'd get, you wouldn't be able to moderate your dose and you would just be overwhelmed and you'd lose body control. You'd have to have spotters and you would, you know, I felt like I was sort of uh, blasted into outer space and into the moment of creation. Um, and so I, it was very inspirational for me, but this time using the vape pens, it was more um, therapeutic and catalyzing in that way. And I know if I would have kept using higher doses, then I would have lost my sense of self and, and been more this merging. But uh, what Stan Groff has said is um, that the future of psychiatry is MDMA and then like an hour later using the vape pens. Wow, and that's fascinating. Because the MDMA gives you the sense of uh, safety. It's a reduction of activity in the amygdala. You, you, you're not so uh, reactive to uh, fear-based emotions. And so this dissolution of the ego is inherently frightening. It's, it's the way in which we orient our survival in the world. And when you, it takes a lot of skill to let that go. And that, that's where maturity and skill for people that do psychedelics to be able to surrender is, is a challenge. But when you have the MDMA base and the sense of safety, then you can sort of observe more carefully this dissolution and this move into this unit of consciousness. Well, let me share with you, I am not, I have not necessarily sought out psychedelic experiences, but my wife uh, has uh, a few friends who are seekers, if you will, uh -huh. and uh, uh, one had recommended a boga to her. Oh, yes. And, and then the other had recommended the toad. And my wife listened and she goes, that's amazing. Wow. Uh, maybe I should try that. So she actually <laughs> si signed up for these. And, you know, this is not an inexpensive exercise. And so then she comes to me as the time is, is ha getting close, and she says, I'm too afraid to do this. Will you do this? Oh. And uh, so I said, sure. Uh, so <laughs> okay, great job. Hooray. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, I, I just wanted to relate to you uh, maybe quickly these two two situations. One was the the toad, if you will, and uh, I would say at least my own experiences that fear and anxiety, if they are present, will have a profound effect 
on the outcome yes. of your experience. And for me, I had nothing. I felt perfectly comfortable. So when you mentioned your experience with the M, uh, the uh, uh, five uh, yeah, five meo DMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I felt like I was had been shot out of a slingshot into yeah, outer yeah. space, right? I mean, yeah. it was like a zoom. But the amazing thing was, while I was out there, I connected with everything and had mm -hmm. this incredible sense of oneness. And I just uh, cried tears of joy. And it was just this beautiful, uh, extraordinary experience. And, uh, uh, and then with the aboga was... Uh, Again, there was a subset of people which sort of fascinated me because they would be crying and highly emotional because their shadow self, I think, came up and yes, they had never yes. faced it. And I think if you've never faced it, then it's incredibly frightening because I think most people push that away. Mm -hmm. And if you push it away when you're weak, when you're uh, stressed, when you're anxious, it will come back and bite you. And I think, at least for me, I, I've dealt with those issues <laughs> a little bit. So I was perfectly fine. So people were vomiting and crying and all these things. Yeah. And I just had a, a, just a very fascinating, interesting experience where I got some uh, insights. Uh, but again, I have not tried either since. But uh, uh, and in some ways, this is an interesting point because... You know, somebody mentioned heroin to me, and they said, man, the first time I took it, I got this incredible blast. And I, 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 and, you know, I, I wanted to repeat it again, but I, I've never been able to repeat it. But I think people will chase after repeated psychedelic experiences trying to get that same effect. And I think that's uh, a really hard thing to do. And I think actually it uh, interferes with the possibilities of a positive experience. Maybe you could comment on how some people keep chasing this. Yeah. Um, b before that, I'd like to just say that one, one of the um, quotes that I use in my talk, uh, a lot of my talks, is from Carl Jung. And what he said was, is the most important um, spiritual, therapeutic, and political thing we can do is to withdraw the projection of our shadow onto others. And I think we see that Trump is a master of that, you know, of projection of, of whatever he's doing is other people are doing the same thing. So his shadow is projected on everybody else. And so if we can withdraw the projection of our shadow and accept that as a part of ourself, then we can be more um, capable of, of seeing people as blends of good and bad. We're also blends of good and bad. And so this, and we don't need to demonize others because we can start to handle it ourselves. The, the other question before I get to, to your question is, I'm just wondering about your wife. So after she's seen you do these two experiences, um, has she said, oh, okay, you're, you've come back, you know, maybe I should try it. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I love my wife dearly, but uh, she has a lot of fear and anxiety about things sometimes and I, I, I and again as I was emphasizing which I think is really important if you go in with no fear and we're talking about the shadow and accept yourself the good and the bad parts and know that will never go away you just have to be comfortable with it and also as you pointed out understand that that's sort of the human dilemma and it's yeah. okay and so I think not having that fear, but, you know, I think she's anxious that she's going to lose control. And I think there are a lot of people like that. 
Yeah, and, and I think she's right. I mean, that, that is the point. You do lose control, but it's a control that's um, not necessarily so healthy by keeping things in the shadows. So you do lose control, but if you can help people feel in this safe container that, that they'll be supported in um, working with whatever they find, then it can be beneficial. But it doesn't help to say to people, oh, you're not going to lose control, because you will. And in fact, that's why you do it. We've got this conscious control all the time, and, and we're trying to get beyond that. So, uh, and that's where I think we get to Stan Groff and this idea of using MDMA before you use the 5-MeO. That gives you that sense of safety that you can uh, move into these other spaces. No, I think that's a good point. And again, uh, it is important to realize <clears throat> that those types of fears and anxieties will significantly interfere with the uh, uh, best experience you can uh, you can have. Um, yeah. The other thing so, I, I oh I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, what I just want to say is that you can start without fear, and then you can encounter fear during the experience too. So so you can't always say oh I'm feeling great now, because you never know what's going to emerge. Uh, no, no, I, I certainly appreciate that. I, I've, uh, again, I have not repeatedly sought out these things. These things have sort of come to me and I say, oh, that sounds interesting. And I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hear that to be an invitation for some vape pens. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk, we can talk about that offline, right? <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I did have an experience with MDMA and psilocybin, which was an interesting experience. And, uh, uh, wow. and again, uh, I w this may sound strange, but I was sort of doing this out of intellectual interest in that yeah. case. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, for me at least, it was strange because I felt that, and I, I actually just sat there in a meditative position for five hours. Wow. Uh, wow. And, but... I was had this feeling that I could take on the suffering, and it was uh, it was an interesting experience to say the least. Wow. But uh, uh, but it was but it was very powerful because I was okay doing that. Yeah. So I I had all of these people around me who uh, uh, were smelling flowers and saying I love you. But uh, <laughs> but for me, it was a very deep experience of containing suffering. So. But, wow. Um, you know, that, that just reminds me to mention a, an incredible documentary called Descending the Mountain. And it's about, um, have you seen it or heard about it by any chance? No, I haven't. Oh, great. Okay. So you'll love it because it's the combination of neuroscience, meditation, and psychedelics. Ah. So um, Vanya Palmers, who is the leader of the Zen community in Switzerland. I was introduced to him in 1983 by the Assistant Secretary General of the UN, Robert Mueller, who wrote New Genesis, Shaping Global Spirituality. But, and I introduced Vanya to MDMA back in 83 and 84. But over time, he had to leave the position as the head of the Zen community because Zen has been traditionally anti-psychedelic in a lot of its ways. It's about meditation and psychedelics are... Um, potentially um, confusing or, or whatever, that, that, it's, that it's not generally been accepted. So he had to leave his position of leadership in order to experiment with psychedelics, and then he's sort of come back. He's found a way to blend them with his meditation practice. And so this experiment was neuroscientists at the University of Zurich did brain scans with these lifelong meditators 
before and after they went to a, uh, I think it was a five-day Zen meditation retreat, a silent retreat. And in the middle of it, they got a pill. They all had, uh, it was either psilocybin or a placebo. They were told to meditate through that, which was very difficult. So they got movies. So Descending the Mountain shows some of them uh, unable to meditate through the uh, psilocybin experience. Um, but then what they did is brain scans after, they showed brain changes. They showed that it helped deepen their meditation practice. It had some personality changes. So I think what's happening in Zen, and, and I think your experience to sit and meditate with these psychedelics for that five hours, that's tremendous because I think that um, it's not either or. And there are ways that people are learning to synergize. It's not meditation or psychedelics. And it's not psychedelics all the time. You can meditate every day, but you take psychedelics very rarely. But even rarely, it can bring you to a state of mind that then when you're meditating, you can kind of aim in that direction or you know that that's possible. Um, so I think that Descending the Mountain is, is a beautiful, eloquent, poetic um, expression oh. of science and mysticism and meditation. Oh, great. Uh, I will have to uh, see that. Uh, you mentioned something that I think actually is very relative here, which is these other techniques to get yeah. there, if you will. Yeah. And I know uh, Stan Groff had, uh, is a big holotropic breathwork person, if you will. And, and in fact, yeah. uh, you were trained in that. Yes. And so maybe you can comment whether it's meditation, whether it's holotropic breathwork, uh, or other techniques to get to that place you know i spent some time with father keating mm -hmm. and and you know he talked about centered prayer uh that took him at least what he described as a mystical uh experience um but maybe you can just comment for our listeners that while we're talking about psychedelics there are a whole variety of other ways in which you can connect uh, with this inner aspect of your consciousness, or if you want to call it mysticism. Yeah, I think that that's really, really important because I think there was this also uh, mistaken understanding during the 60s that Leary and others would say, um, you must do the psychedelics. And the psychedelics give you this unique experience that you can't get in any other way. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. And one of the things that most impressed me about um, Sasha Shilgin, the sort of godfather of MDMA, he talked about his first mescaline experience that he had. His first psychedelic experience was with mescaline. But what he, his conclusion was that he wasn't um, having a mescaline experience. He was having a human experience that the mescaline gave him access to. And when you think about it that way, then that means there are other ways to access it. So one of the brilliance of Stan was that after the backlash against the psychedelics, and many people went into meditation and said, oh, you know, the famous saying by Ramdas, you know, once you get the medicine, once you get the message, hang up the phone, you know, as if there's only one message, <laughs> which right, is right, right. right. But but what Stan developed was a way through hyperventilation. And it was eloquent in what he said, just breathe faster and deeper. There was no complicated in this nostril, count these number of times, whatever. But you can alter your brain chemistry through hyperventilation and you can sort of lower this, uh, the, the barrier between the conscious and the unconscious mind becomes more permeable. People have done that through fasting. Um, you know, we talk about um, a lot of the Native Americans um, have done that through pain, through, um, 
you know, different kind of ceremonies. Um, the Sundance, where you're pulling, you know, something through your flesh, uh, through your muscles. Um, there's ways through sex. There's ways through uh, just being in nature. There's a whole uh, category of experiences that was called gratuitous grace. It just comes over you, and you didn't really prepare or do anything to it. So I, th I think all of these different techniques point to the fact that these are inner human experiences that we can access in multiple ways. And not only that, but once we've accessed them, we can try to learn to do that on our own in a more voluntary way. And I think one of the best examples of that for me was Brother David Steindlerost, who oh, was a real... Yes. So I also introduced him to MDMA for his first MDMA experiences. And <laughs> he used MDMA in the monastery to, as an aid to meditation. And this was now the monastery right near Big Sur, the Kamaldolese right. monastery. So uh, several of the other monks were there also experimenting started. And Father Bruno, who was the prior at, at the time, called me into a meeting. And he's like, what are you doing with my monks and your drugs? <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> But I was able to explain to him why, and luckily they were legal at the time. And so he permitted them to keep ex experimenting. But what was so elegant about what Brother David did is he, he has a book called Gratitude is the Heart of Prayer. And he said that people kind of make it out that this mystical experience is something you have to meditate for 20 years, you have to live on a mountaintop, you, you know. But he says that everybody has mystical experiences in the sense of gratitude, that you're, you're just for your breath, for being alive, for, you know, and that you can tune in to this universal love and just by being grateful about things. So that's just a way to kind of bring it back to something that we can all do. So I think the main lesson about all these different techniques, it's not that one is better than the other either. It's just which people, you know, which one do you gravitate to? Or do you gravitate to the range of them? And I think the the beauty of this uh, descending the mountain and this new re research demonstrating again that you can combine, you know, lifelong Zen meditation with an occasional psychedelic experience and then deepen your meditation practice, that there's a way in which they're all synergistic. But over the course of human history, for thousands of years, the most reliable catalyst has been psychedelics. And when we talk a lot about mainstreaming psychedelics or um, bringing them back into our culture, um, what many people don't realize is that the Western culture with the Greeks for 2,000 years had the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was from around 1600 BC to around 392 or so. And this was involving a psychedelic drug. And so everybody who we know, Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras, you know, all of the great Socrates, all, all of these people that we think of as, you know, epitome of the Greek culture, they participated in the Eleusinian mysteries. And so they had this mystical spiritual understanding, understanding the, the process of death rebirth that while we are, you know, born and die in a very limited time frame, we're also part of this much bigger story and, and some part of us never really dies. I mean, I would say that our ego and the self dies, but, but you know, energy is, uh, you know, not lost or, you know, it's just transformed. So I think that we've got this clear um, sense that there are multiple techniques that people can use if they want to, to try to experience these things. 
And it's just which people, you know, which, which techniques do you gravitate to? None are better or worse than the others. But I do think that um, in view of the, the crisis, now, if we'll talk about um, just, you know, compassion about what's going on in the world. We have terrible climate change. We have mass extinction. We have the rise of authoritarianism. It's a, it's a dangerous time, and we have nuclear weapons of incredible destructive power. So I think there is an imperative for humanity as a whole and individuals to evolve so that we are way more advanced intellectually than we are emotionally and spiritually. And, so our, and, and we have technology that we can't handle, and we're handling in a poor way. So I do think that we need to accelerate our emotional and spiritual maturity as individuals and collectively to handle what, what technologies we've created. And if so, we can have kind of paradise on earth. And that because time is short, I think that psychedelics should be legal. They should be medicines. They should be one of the tools that are available to people, but they should be anchored within the context of all these other approaches that help ground and integrate them. No, I think that's actually uh, an excellent point. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's sad to, because uh, you see so many people who don't understand that they are carrying baggage, which allows them to be manipulated or uh, convinced or do actions uh, that's not really their true self. But they need to look into that and have this sort of metacognition of how that is uh, impacting them. Uh, maybe I can ask you three more things here. Sure. Uh, uh, tell me your thoughts on microdosing, because that seems to be uh, uh, the latest on the uh, Housewives yeah. of Beverly Hills or whoever the heck it is. Uh, everybody's yeah. talking about it, right? Yeah. Well, I think that um, microdosing is um, a very interesting development. Um, and there's um, all sorts of benefits that people have reported. If they really want to learn about it, um, check out Jim Fadiman on the internet, and he's sort of been the one that's cataloged most of these experiences. But there, there's a variety of um, reported benefits in terms of um, more creativity, more focus, uh, more energy, uh, uplifting of uh, depression or anxiety. Personally, I'll say that um, I prefer macrodosing. <laughs> <laughs> and because I, I, I don't want to be like, dependent on taking something every day even, or I, you know, maybe vitamins or something. But, but I think that um, for psychological issues, depression, anxiety, PTSD, you can have a lift by microdosing. But I think it's um, ideally you get into a situation where you could do deeper doses into the root of the problem so that your baseline has changed and you don't need to do this. So I think there's, um, there's a very interesting study um, about semantic priming. And I think this suggests how microdosing can be helpful in a creative problem-solving way. That's why it's been so popular in um, Silicon Valley and, and, and a lot of competitive conditions. You know. So the, the study was done with psilocybin and semantic priming. So semantic priming means I say day, you say night, I say sun, you say moon. There's just these normal kind of patterns. But when you give somebody psilocybin and you prime them with one of these starter words, that they have a wider range of associations than they would normally. Somehow the, the psilocybin or whatever the microdose is, that it, it, in this case it was psilocybin, it kind of expands your um, neural networks, your, your sense of connections. 
Now, the, the other thing, though, is that the few studies that have been done trying to demonstrate microdosing and creativity have failed. They have not shown that it was greater than placebo. Now, one explanation is the measures aren't that sensitive, and these are people, there's ceiling effects, and they're already good at all this, but that's not completely satisfying. So I, I do think that there needs to be a lot more research, but I do think that uh, microdosing for pain, some people do that, or microdosing for a mood lifter. So it, it's, it's kind of exciting, actually, that people have taken this um, very powerful psychedelics, particularly like LSD or psilocybin, and have found a way to use it in these small, small doses. It's like um, growing comfortable with it in this is different way, and there's a whole set of different benefits. So I think it's uh, more and more people are doing it, and I think it's uh, mostly a good thing. You know, I, I would say, though, and maybe this is just uh, being co uh, converse, uh, I think that many of these things are in some way a placebo effect with yes. microdosing, yeah. where you believe it and therefore it becomes. And uh, uh, because many of these things if you have done mind training, mm -hmm. they're available to you. Yes, uh, yes. And uh, I, uh, so that's one comment, but there are three other things I wanted to mention. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, manna, uh, yeah. we were talking about the Greeks, but uh, uh, I had a conversation <laughs> with somebody who said that manna was actually a psychedelic, and in fact, it's been used in Jewish traditions for thousands of years. And in fact, there's a rabbi in Denver who... Uh, promotes uh, psilocybin. I don't know if you know who that is, but uh, uh, he started a synagogue, uh, which you joined to uh, be able to impart in the sacrament. Wow. Well, um, I, there's a great story. So there is um, the head of cognitive psychology at Hebrew University, Benny Shannon, was very cognitive, you know, but, but he got really interested in ayahuasca. And so he ended up writing a whole book on ayahuasca, and it kind of balanced him out. And then later, he did this study about manna, and he wrote this scientific paper that claimed that Moses was high on a psychedelic when he saw the burning bush. He was a and psychonaut. That, <laughs> he was a psychonaut, and that the manna that grew up like mushrooms or so, that this was... So this was um, after I was back in school, after this 10 years where I was dropped out, you know, and I went to my dad... And it was great. I said, Dad, my whole life, you know, it's justified because Moses used psychedelics. It's part of our origin history. And psychedelics were part of Judaism. And now I'm just following in Moses's line and everything's great. And it's so great you supported me to do this. And my dad was hilarious. He said, in order for me to believe that, first off, I'd have to believe in Moses. <laughs> And then he said, there's no archaeological evidence that the Jews built the pyramids. There's no evidence that they crossed the Sinai for 40 years. And it's maybe mythological, symbolic, metaphorical. But um, I do think that, um, I like to believe at least, that uh, psychedelics were intimately involved with Judaism from the very beginning. But uh, certainly they're involved with now. And, and I think that one of the things that led me to psychedelics was my disappointment with my bar mitzvah. Because now that that now we're getting to the root of all of your problems here. So I <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I had this again. I'm the oldest of four kids, and I had this idea that the bar mitzvah was going to change me. 
it was going to turn me into a man and that this had been going on for thousands of years and there was something about this rite of passage that was going to sink deep into these uh, emotional and, and intellectual changes that I was going through and that it would make me into a man. And I remember the morning after my bar mitzvah and I'm lying in bed, I woke up and I'm like, I'm the same. I am not any different. This bar mitzvah did nothing. And then I'm like, well, I did have a party. <laughs> you know. But then I was like, okay, God's busy. You know, A lot of people probably got bar mitzvah. I'll just wait another day. And so I waited another day, nothing. And I kept waiting and waiting. And finally, a whole week goes by. And I'm like, all right, a whole new crop of people have been bar mitzvah. I have just fallen off the list. It's just not going to happen. But four years later, when I was 17, four and a half years later, when I started trying LSD, I thought, this is what my bar mitzvah should have been. Who am I? Where do I fit in? What is my, how am I connected to the bigger universe? So I, I, I like this uh, thought that maybe manna was psychedelic and psychedelics are connected <laughs> to Judaism, but certainly we need to make them more. And in fact, there is a project that we have, which is with, there's small groups of Israelis and talk about compassion. There's small groups of Israelis and Palestinians that are doing ayahuasca and MDMA together. And wow. we're now studying that. We've got a contract with Hebrew University um, in Jerusalem. They have the largest academic program in conflict negotiation, management, and resolution. And so they're working to develop some metrics um, to evaluate whether we can bring Israelis and Palestinians together, have them have MDMA experience, and then see if that reduces the otherizing and, and various prejudices that they might have. And Lior Roseman is a neuroscientist. Actually, I don't know if, So Lior Roseman is a neuroscientist. He worked with Robin Carr Harris. He did a lot of the work on the brains that you see, the brain under LSD and the brain, right. you know, all the connections. Um, but he's he got kind of disillusioned a little bit with neuroscience and even more disillusioned by the politics in Israel. And so he's now moved from neuroscience, which was his complete focus, and now he does a, a lot of work on um, these Israelis and Palestinians with ayahuasca. And he's taken a group of uh, Israelis and Palestinians to Spain for a group ayahuasca experience. Wow. So I think that the, um, th there's also an, an amazing study that's going to be discussed in a couple weeks, actually, at the Parliament of the World Religions. So that's uh, I, the, will be, I will be there. Uh, are, are you going? You, well, um, Cody Swift, who, who's done the, he's done a qualitative study of the Religious Leaders Project that was done by um, Roland Griffiths and uh, Tony Bosis. I don't know that I'm coming because I'm going to Sarajevo for um, ah, training right. for Ukrainian therapists. Yes, um, but, um, but you're going to be there. That's great. Yes, I'm on two panels. You may find this amazing as I'm an atheist, but I, I have been a senior <laughs> advisor to the Council of the Parliament of the World's Religions for many years. <laughs> wow, that's tremendous. Yes. Yeah, well, so if you can make sure that if you yeah. have time, if it's not at the same time one of your talks, Cody Swift will be Perfect. talking about the qualitative study of the religious leaders who receive psilocybin from a oh, range wow. of different religions. It's in wow. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's extraordinary. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, Rick, I, I've had this incredible experience of interacting with not only the Dalai Lama, yeah, as I was a chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation, but a number of spiritual and religious leaders around the world, which has been an extraordinarily enlightening experience because what you see is there's the dogma, but all of these people sit above the dogma because they have this intuitive sense of our oneness, uh, the nature of compassion, 
uh, connection, unconditional love. And it, it's really quite extraordinarily uh, extraordinary and quite uh, beautiful. Um, and so I, I feel very blessed to have uh, wow. uh, interacted with so many of these uh, extraordinary individuals. Wow, that's wonderful. Because I, I'd say, you know, it was the Good Friday Experiment follow-up that really confirmed my theory of change, that there are these um, political implications of the mystical experience. And you're sort of reflecting that back, that people are above the dogma. They become a little bit more um, metaphorical and ecumenical and can appreciate and not be scared of other traditions. Um, and I think that that's something that is um, so important. And then it was this uh, um, Robert Mueller, the Assistant Secretary General of the UN, this idea of new genesis shaping global spirituality. It was the idea that the UN was created to mediate conflicts between countries, but a lot of those conflicts are religious-based. And we need to find a way to help people not kill each other because they have a slightly different dogma. Well, that's interesting. You know, I spent a lot of time in uh, in uh, Belfast, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, discussing uh, a number of these issues and uh, uh, bringing programs on uh, uh, compassion, self-compassion that we've developed at Stanford. But uh, uh, in fact, we're going to have a conference there in the next year or so, uh, looking at some Ooh. of these things. But what's interesting is that, and in some ways, the United States might be better is, you know, when you have these groups of people, and it also, I think, relates to the Hutus and, and uh, mm -hmm. Tutsis, yeah. you have these people who are fixed in a geography. They're born there, they die there, and therefore they carry generations of trauma that they can't escape from. And right. it keeps getting repeating over and over again, which, of course, is a tragedy. You know, the opposite uh, side of that coin is, you know, we have people in the United States, they're not afflicted by that, but because they don't have a connection to a family, people who've known them, these deep connections, then that creates an environment where they're stressed and they're anxious because they don't have that normal, deep human connection that uh, offers resilience uh, to overcome those feelings. Okay, two questions, and then we, we probably should go on. So the first one is, t tell me about Carlos Castaneda. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay. That's cool. So, so here's a funny point. So we, we, so now this is now, um, 1973 and I'm 19 years old and I am in New Orleans. This was before I started building things. And so I spent a couple months uh, in New Orleans before Mardi Gras and I, um, had recently seen, um, Easy Rider you know, the, the movie. So I'm in New Orleans right after around Mardi Gras and some friends and I thought, let's take LSD and hop <laughs> over the fence and, and hang out in these cemeteries the way they did in Easy Rider. And while we were doing that, we, this is in the middle of the night, we discovered a crypt that had been, uh, the door had been pulled open. There was a note in there and there was some voodoo dolls there. You'll see how this gets around to Castaneda. So uh, I was with uh, four of us, and one of the girls was like, oh, this is super scary. What are we going to do? And I said, well, let's read the note. And the, at least we'll read the note. So the note was this uh, woman wanted her boyfriend to stop falling in love with her best friend and fall back in love with her. So we figured that this was um, low-level voodoo. And so we thought, okay, we can take these voodoo dolls as souvenirs. So we, we took these voodoo dolls, and um, I got one, and a friend got one, and then... Um, Two days later, right when I'm getting ready to leave um, New Orleans, I go to see um, 
maybe we can score some more voodoo dolls. Maybe somebody, you know, replace them with, with so we get there right as the cemetery is closed and I, I climb up uh, the wall is not that high just to look in to see if I can see. And a police car comes by and says, um, you know, get down from there. So I get down from there. I, I walk around the block, three police cars come, they surround me and, and they come up to me and my friend who is there and he said, um, the police officer said, how many more of you are in there? And I said, well, they're all dead in there. <laughs> so he said, you're under arrest. So he arrested me and I spent, uh, but I was had friends who were in legal aid. Um, and while I'm arrested in this big room, everybody's telling stories of how ridiculous they got arrested. Everybody's, of course, innocent. And this one guy says, oh, my God, I'm a um, city councilor. I, I saw people being harassed by the police. I went over to see what was going on. And they arrested me, too. And he said, now I can bail everybody out here on their own recognizance if you want. And I'm going to you know, get these guys in trouble for what they were doing. And he, he bails out my friend and others. And I'm like, OK, I'm never going to be in jail again. I'll stay with you and just to see what it's like. All right. So as soon as everybody's gone, it's just he and I. Then they separate us and they put us they put me into a cell all by myself. And I have to wait the night to, to when I come to the arraignment. The only thing that is in this cell <laughs> is a book by Carlos Castaneda. I'm deep buried in the New Orleans jail, and there I am able to read Carlos Castaneda. It just was incredible. And so I do think that um, it, it was amazing, but, but I do think that um, Carlos Castaneda made up a bunch of it. And one of his books was called Tales of Power. And so I think that he got wrong. I think he got off track. He was amazing. He did make a stuff, a bunch of the stuff up for his dissertation, but it inspired loads and loads of people. But I think he he moved towards power rather than healing, and I think that that's where he got off track. And I think that is true. A lot of the Castaneda books are about uh, power struggles between different shamans. And why I gravitated while I was reading Castaneda and also reading Stan Groff is that Stan was focused on healing. And that's, I really thought, was the anchor. And that is the reality check. And that you can get distracted by being focused on, on power. So I think in the later years of his life, Car Carlos Castaneda started uh, teaching about different kind of movements. Like we know the Sufis with the whirling dervishes and things that Castaneda got involved in sort of um, you know, physical ways to try to get into different states of consciousness. But he became more and more marginalized and more and more um, isolated. And so I, I think that he was very helpful in bringing to awareness the idea of shamanism, of psychedelics, of peyote. But again, this idea of um, when you move away from healing into power, um, you're losing the thread. Well, I think that's... Uh... A profound way to end, but I'm not going to let in because I have one more question. But uh, 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 because, because in many ways, you know, it's this dichotomy between what is it that you're going to focus on? Are you going to yeah. focus on the other, or are you going to focus essentially on yourself, right? And which is the acquisition of power. And I, I frankly, I think that's what we're seeing in our present day uh, society in the United yeah. States. And yeah. it's very unfortunate uh, because. Everything is available now for us to understand our oneness, our connection, and to 
frankly, uh, you know, be part of the human race, not uh, a tribe. And yeah. uh, I, I think that's really important. But well, as well, actually, let, me, let me just add one quick thing there, which is that I think that it's both, that the more you understand our commonalities, the more we can appreciate the differences so that we can be a specific tribe. I'm Jewish, goes, but, you know, we can be our tribal self, but what we know is that underneath that, we're primarily human. In the same way with above the dogma that you described, that there's a religious experience, a sense of connection, and then the dogma sort of flows from that, but it's not as, as um, central as that. So, so I think yeah. that a lot of people fear that if, that if they have these mystical experiences, and I think that you'll see this with the religious leader study that Cody will talk about at the Parliament of the World Religions, is that people stay within their religions, but they do change their interpretation. They become more ecumenical, more metaphorical, but it doesn't mean that you have to give away who you really are. The same way that we don't, like, like when Robert Mueller talked about global spirituality, it doesn't mean that we have to give up all the particular religions and things that have come through thousands of years through different cultures. It can be both the unity and the diversity. No, I think that's exactly right. And uh, actually, there's a wonderful book by um, um, uh, David DeStino called How God Works. Have you seen that? No, no. Oh, it's fascinating because it talks about the nature of religious ritual and how it affects your brain, and it gives you this um, a sense of comfort and support. And again, it gets back to this whole idea. If you're in a tribe, there's commonality, you connect, you feel comfortable. And yeah. I think that's, that's uh, you know, uh, what we were made to do. But I think your point's really uh, critical to understand that it's fine to have your own tribe, but at the end of the day, you are still part of humanity. So my last question, though, <laughs> is, is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, over your right shoulder, there's a strange picture, which I've been looking at here oh. and trying to figure out what the hell that is. Oh, that's hilarious. And, and, uh, uh, so tell us what that is behind you there. Oh, I, um, okay, because you've shared stories about your wife, so now I get a chance to share a story about my wife. Okay. So um, um, this was a um, – my, my wife and a bunch of her girlfriends had this monthly – they called it um, Art Night – and they would get together and they would make art of different kinds. And, and for some of them, it, it was, for most of them, it was just art therapy in a sense. But um, for some, it became art. So the, well, the, right over my shoulder behind it in the stained glass, that's stuff that my mother made. But the one there that she, my wife did a whole series of Madonnas. Yes, that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so this um, was the uh, Madonna of um, the patron saint of multitaskers. <laughs> so this was the, the mothers that have to do other things. Um, I'll show you one other one, which is, uh, you can't really see there, but this is called um, the Madonna with other plans. So there are all these babies that are sort of falling out of her head because she doesn't want to have babies. <laughs> so it's Madonna <laughs> with other plans. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think you need to put this on the MAPS website so that we can <laughs> see your wife's art. <laughs> she would love to hear that. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Maybe she could even uh, start selling the art and uh, uh, support. <laughs> well, that. she doesn't make that many of them, so it's nice to have her, you know, but so, this was, and she would illustrate it with found objects and stuff, so that's where that old cell phone and, and things like that. And um, 
Yeah. Thank you for asking that, Jim. That's yes. great. No, no. Well, listen, I, I so appreciate you taking the time. It's really been a, an amazing pleasure. I think we've covered a fair amount of turf here, and hopefully yeah. it's maybe slightly different than some of your other conversations. Oh, very uh, much so. Very much so. And and I just like to, if anybody wants to learn about MAPS, MAPS.org, and we are a nonprofit, and they can make donations if they want. And the, the Public Benefit Corp is our pharmaceutical arm, so that's... Um, we hope MDMA will be a medicine by um, around uh, May or June of 2024. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much. We'll post that in our show notes, and we'll also post the link to maps. And there was something else that we were going to post, but I'm sure we'll, my oh. assistants in this podcast <laughs> will be incredibly critical in figuring out what the hell that is so uh <laughs> okay rick listen take care of yourself uh okay. much love and uh i hope we have a chance to uh get together in person and maybe uh uh use a vape pen <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we can talk to your wife about mdma <laughs> yes actually uh, exactly okay my friend <laughs> okay <laughs> take care be well thanks Great. again Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.